0: We'll be looking at Mark 8, verses 22 through 30. Mark 8, 22 through 30. As you turn there, I want to draw your attention to the fact that when we find out who somebody is, we sometimes treat them differently, don't we? I can remember one time, a long time ago, when I was scheduled to go on a blind date. I had not met this girl before. We were to meet at a restaurant until she found out I was a Presbyterian. And that was the end of that. I wasn't to go on that date with that girl. People are always trying to figure out who we are. And here in the scriptures, if you've been following along in the book of Mark, or perhaps in your Bible reading, if you've read the book of Mark recently, you find out that people are always trying to figure out who Jesus is, up to this high point and climax of the middle part of the book. So follow along as I read Mark 8, beginning with verse 22, and we'll read through verse 30. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him he asked him, do you see anything? Then he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Let's bow briefly in a word of prayer. Lord, I pray that this word shall fall upon ears that hear and hearts that understand because your spirit is at work upon us. And Father, I pray that anything spoken here, anything thought here, done here, would be consistent with your word or else fall away, never to be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week when we traveled up north then I had called too late to the local kennel that we used to take our dog. And so we had to take the dog with us. Now if you know anything about our dog, he's black and white and his name is Zorro. And Zorro was named after a historical figure. You know, the historical figures like the Lone Ranger or or the Cape Crusader or Zorro here by their acts of heroism in these fictional accounts, by their rescue of others or by their fighting their crime, people around always ask, who is that man? In fiction, it's really not that important. Although if you want to understand the story, I guess it is important, but we know that it's fictional. It doesn't really matter who the Lone Ranger or Zorro or the Cape Crusader are. Those people are all just fictional characters. They're stories. But when that question is based on the reality of the historical man, Jesus, it is crucial to know the right answer to who that man is. Jesus, as the Gospels tell us, particularly Matthew and here Mark, tell us that Jesus is the Christ. And because Jesus is the Christ... We bow to him. First of all, Jesus' actions reveal that he is the Christ. Secondly, we'll see in this story of the healing of the blind man, we'll see that Jesus' touch really redefines the Christ concept. And finally, that Jesus' disciples here reveal that he is the Christ. First of all, the context of this passage, just a little bit of a reminder of where we are in Mark. Mark has been telling us the teaching... And the supernatural healings and miracles that Jesus has performed. The context here, if we go back to verse 18 of chapter 8, Jesus asked the question of his disciples: Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? Now, of course. In that question, those series of questions, he's asking them to consider the connection between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, and of course being wary of the seed or leaven of hypocrisy in the Pharisees, of unbelief in the Sadducees, and of course on all of the evil that is taking place around them. But if we understand the context here of what we're getting to in this section, the context is this. Do you not see and hear by my actions, Jesus is saying, who I am and what these things mean? And of course, the question here at the end, verse 21 in the context here, he said to them, do you not yet understand? In other words, the disciples simply didn't get it. Here are the disciples, they hear his teaching, they see the miracles, they see him conquering the wind and the waves and feeding people with very little food, and they simply don't get it, and neither do the other people around them. They simply don't understand who Jesus is in most of these stories. But the context here also reminds us that these events, everything that has taken place to this point, These events fulfilled Scripture. Andrew read earlier from Psalm 146. And of course, one of the things in Psalm 146, verse 8, if you'll notice that particular verse, it says this, if I can get there. It says here, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. By now, Jesus has already healed at least two individuals of blindness in this portion of Mark. He's going to do that again in chapter 10. And here it is, the blind seeing. Who does that? Notice it says, the Lord does this. This is a claim of the divinity of Jesus. Secondly, Not only do the blind see, but in the context here, just a little bit earlier, he healed a deaf man and allowed him to hear. In Isaiah chapter 29, it reminds us not only will the blind see, but the deaf will hear. And the context of Isaiah 29 is a context of being reminded of the redemption or restoration of Israel. And so here, these events of healing the blind, healing the deaf, making the lame to walk, and setting the prisoner free, all of these things, are to tell us who Jesus is. Not only that, but there were demonstrations of authority. Back in chapter 1, verse 22, the people marveled because the teaching of Jesus was not like the teaching of the Pharisees or the scribes. The teaching of Jesus was as one with authority. In fact, if you read through all the Gospels, you realize that those who opposed Jesus simply could not do that. The authority of Jesus was too strong. He had teaching authority he also had supernatural authority even being able to cast out demons earlier in the book of mark the demons even said you are the son of god and he told them don't say that now it's not time yet and they had to obey they were driven out of those who were afflicted with demons Not only this, but we see again and again the natural authority over illness, even over death, raising a girl from the dead in the book of Mark. Also, all of the illnesses, even the touch of Jesus would heal others. The demonstration of authority over all creation was demonstrated by Jesus through the first eight chapters here in the book of Mark. But none of these chapters told us, except for verse 1, None of them again mentioned the Christhood of Jesus. But Jesus' actions were revealing his identity. I remember years ago I was reading a story about Hall of Fame baseball player Cal Ripken Jr. who had written a book about his life and he was doing a book signing And while he was doing the book signing, all kinds of people had lined up to have his autograph and meet the man and all these things. And one of the men who was in the line fainted, dead away. If Cal Ripken had been a savior or even a medical doctor, he would have rushed to the attention of that man who fainted and begun to restore him to health. But Cal Ripken was like everybody else there. Is there a doctor here? When he asked for a doctor, he revealed he was no savior. He was just a mere man. Who, of all things, had excelled at a sport. But his actions here revealed his identity that he was not the savior. So I ask you, how do your actions your interactions with Jesus, how, how does that reveal your identity to others? Do others know who you are by the way you react with others? They should know, like Paul or the apostles, that we will not let anyone bow down to us. We're no God, we're no Savior, but at the same time... We recognize that we are in Christ for those who have been saved by him and so our identity should be revealed by the way we react to others being Christ-like in our love and compassion in the way we stand for truth in the boldness of our witness to others. Our actions should reveal that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. But why at this point Include a miracle that's not included in any of the other gospels. One of the very rare instances, this healing of the blind man at Bethsaida is not in Matthew, it's not in Luke, it's not in John, it's only in Mark. It tells us that here it's in this place called Bethsaida. This is actually. Uh, In the area now that's uh, where Herod Philip is ruling in Idumea. It's far north on the northernmost area of the lake that they've been around for some time now. And here it is. There are unique things about this particular miracle. And even kind of pairing it with a couple of others. There are details here that are different to us. One of them is a reminder here of what takes place, that people bring this blind man to Jesus. Doesn't that indicate sometimes the faith of those around us? They begged him to touch him. There's here in this unique pair of miracles, or this unique miracle here paired with the miracle of the deaf man not too long ago, There's also a third miracle that we might categorize in in a sense here because Jesus does something he doesn't ordinarily do in his miracles. He actually takes this blind man and takes him privately away from the crowd. In fact, you know this is rather unusual. Generally, he heals right in front of everybody. So there's a private flavor here. Now this took place a little bit earlier when he raised a girl from the dead. But this time it was private because all of the professional mourners and all those certainly did not believe Jesus could do anything in healing this girl. And so he wanted them out of the way. And so it was just he and his inner core of disciples. But here this private flavor is he takes this blind man aside. Even as it says, out of the village Away from the people. And then he begins to have personal communication with this blind man. Obviously taking him by the hand would have gotten him attention, wouldn't it? He wouldn't have been able to know where Jesus was pointing or indicating, but... Instead, in an incarnational fashion, coming to the person where he is, he reaches out and grabs him and leads him outside the village. Then it says he did this, kind of a strange thing. He spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him. Now I have to say, I don't really understand some of this, Why did he spit on this man's eyes and not on somebody else's eyes? I don't know. I do know there's a personal touch here. A personal touch here, first of all, this reminds us that this Christ-like figure that's going to be revealed in the next few verses, he's not just the Christ of a nation of people. This was the misunderstanding of what a Messiah would be in those days, perhaps a political Messiah, perhaps one who would take over from The Romans as the savior of geopolitical Israel. But here he is, he is person to person. Something that would have been unexpected in the Christ here. And then he uses this spit, this moist, perhaps the guy heard it, I don't know. He wouldn't have seen him do it. But he would have felt that spit on his eyes. And this personal touch was reminding us that just like he would with lepers, just like he would with the deaf man, the lame, and others, those who were even outside the realm of respectability according to the clean and unclean laws of the day, he would personally touch this individual. And he asked the man... The only time that Jesus asks a question like this, do you see anything? In other words, did this do anything for you? Did it work? And immediately the guy says, I do see something. I see people, but they look like trees walking. Again, unusual. It's here a a two-step healing method. There's all kinds of speculation as to why it took two steps, two times laying on of hands. Maybe it wasn't that it took that, although we seem to kind of immediately jump to that conclusion. Was it because this man's healing was difficult or more difficult than others? I don't think so necessarily. Was it perhaps that there was a lack of faith here? In fact, that might be indicated by the fact that these individuals, it says they begged him to touch him. It doesn't say that they begged him to heal him or to restore his sight. Perhaps they just expected him to bless them or to bless the blind man. I don't know. But the redefinition of what it means to be a Christ throughout this corpus of Mark's events and historical narrative is this he cares individually about the people
1: there's a book in my office that I have that I read several years ago it's by the name
0: by a man by the name of Brand he was a medical doctor and he worked in India he worked with leprosy patients what is now called Hansen's disease Decades ago, he worked with these untouchables, that's what they were called, because people would not want to associate with them. They were ostracized from society because the disease was such a disease that they would stop feeling pain. That's what this kind of disease is. Hansen's disease means that their pain receptacles did not work or had stopped working because of some sort of virus in their body. And because of that, because they couldn't feel pain, then they would hurt themselves. They might burn themselves or they might maim themselves and not even know it. And pretty soon, parts of their body may become deformed or even fall off because of constant inattention when they had need. And so these untouchables were ostracized from society and no one wanted to be around them. They formed their own communities outside the villages but this man and others would come, and he would come in an incarnational fashion. He would come to them, and he would touch them, and he would invite them into his medical facility, and he would look at them, and talk with them, and interact with them, and he would treat them. In fact, in their particular culture, in the one place where he was ministering, it was very important in their culture uh, to have thick eyebrows. The thickest eyebrows were considered the most blessed people. And these individuals would lose their eyebrows because they would be singed or other painful things and they would go away. And he actually developed a procedure where he would transplant hair to provide them eyebrows to make them feel better. You see... Christ-like actions demonstrate the incarnational tendencies of the Christ of the Scriptures. Christ is not someone who is out there who is not caring or individually attentive to the needs of his people. He touches the unlovely and he meets them where they are. The 11 stories that were represented up here in these 11 individuals who came to faith, some of them at other churches, some of them throughout their lives, one of them here at our church.
1: These were all individuals where Jesus himself called them,
0: intervened in their lives, and on a personal level, made them aware of who he was. Just as he did with the disciples. I think the blindness here, the physical healing of this blind man, Mark, is indicating here. As a marker to remind us, it's not just physical blindness that he must heal. It's also the spiritual blindness, isn't it? Verse 27 says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. It's kind of interesting. This is actually the northernmost place in the entire book of Mark. It's, again, an area where Philip Herod is. In fact, the town Caesarea Philippi was one time named after the god Pan. It was Panium or something like that. And here, Philip had rebuilt and renamed this village in honor of Caesar because Caesar had gifted this area amongst all the other territory his father, Herod the Great, had inherited. And so he named it after him. It was a place that was, by and large, not Jewish, but pagan.
1: And notice what he does in this place.
0: He asks the question of his disciples, who do people say that I am? This is Jesus' initiative. This isn't that all of a sudden one of the disciples said, oh yeah, by the way, I know who you are, Jesus. Jesus. No, it's Jesus asking the question to initiate this conversation. It's Jesus' initiative. We find out here this is actually Mark's central theme in this first part of the book, is who is Jesus? It's the first mention of the word Christ since chapter 1, verse 1. And yet all of the indications from healings and teachings and miracles and all those things were, were to show evidence that Jesus was something beyond a mere human. Jesus was someone more important than a political figure. So the first mention since the prologue of the term Christ, and yet the whole first half points to this revelation. After all, you know what people were saying about Jesus by this time. There was scorn and opposition. There were those who came to the conclusion that Jesus was possessed by demons. There was conclusion by others that he was mere celebrity and so they would flock around him to get things and blessings from him. There were puzzled reactions, wondering who could this possibly be and a few individuals believed upon him. And yet here, at geographically the northernmost point of the Gospel of Mark, Peter says this, You are the Christ.
1: Now what everybody else had said by this point, they were
0: indicating forerunners of the Messiah or the Christ.
1: They talked about Elijah,
0: and of course referring probably particularly to the book of Malachi, where it says, before he comes, then Elijah will come. And Jesus himself endorses the idea that John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come.
1: Others say it's John the Baptist. This was not
0: just Herod Antipas' idea when he had had him murdered, executed, and here out of his fear and consternation at seeing the miracles and the information about Jesus, he was concerned in his guilty conscience that this was John the Baptist reincarnated. Evidently others thought the same thing. Matthew tells us that some even said this is Jeremiah. All of them, though, saying this is a prophet. But Peter says something different. You are the Christ. Matthew tells us the fuller rendition of this. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. The disciples here are aware for the first time of who Jesus really is, and yet they don't even understand that. In fact, from this point on, the rest of the book of Mark is the commencement of their training. Now that they have been told supernaturally, for Matthew reminds us, Jesus tells Peter, he says, you did not come to this on your own. It was revealed to you by the Father. In other words, the Holy Spirit revealed this to him. They couldn't come to this on their own conclusion. And it's not Peter as opposed to all the others. Peter is just a spokesman. He asked the whole group, and the whole group had come to the conclusion that Jesus is something more than a prophet. He's the Christ. So here, this commencement of training that, They supernaturally get this title.
1: As opposed to all the others who think Jesus is some type of forerunner of the Christ who was to come.
0: Matthew tells us this actually begins the church. In your bulletin in the outline it has the quote from Matthew and it talks about On this rock I will build my church. This is the rock. It's not Peter. This is the interpretation of the Roman Catholic Church. that actually is Peter himself. Although it's so ironic that here in Mark's gospel, which we think we get from Peter, which is sometimes even called the Roman gospel, it doesn't include this information about on this rock I build my church, which tells you something about this idea of it being Peter himself. But here it says on this rock, this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the idea that Jesus is the only Savior among men, the one who has promised to redeem his people Israel, on this truth, all of human history hinges that Jesus really is the promised one, the anointed one to carry out God's purpose. This begins the church of Jesus Christ. And here, from the rest of Mark, is going to be the implications, the instruction to the disciples on the implications of this truth that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. My wife loves murder mysteries. I like them too. If you go to a murder mystery play, the first act gives you clues to the identity of the murderer, right? You're supposed to be able to pay attention, and if you get all the clues right, then perhaps you can get the right answer. Who is the murderer? But the second act, it gives you all the implications and the conclusions necessary to come away from that with an understanding of what took place. Jesus here, as Christ, is crucial to Christianity. If Jesus was just an important teacher, if Jesus was just someone who was a good man, if Jesus was just an example to follow, it wouldn't really be all that important, would it? But Jesus is the Savior, the Christ, who saves his people from their sins. He's the anointed one to carry out the main plan of salvation that the Father from all eternity had for us. Mark's gospel here is that literary masterpiece. From the first verse where it said, and I quote here from Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ. The Son of God. From that point until this point in chapter 8, it has been a crescendo showing us who Jesus is by his acts and his teaching and the amazing and powerful things that took place in his ministry. And now at this point, Jesus is ready to reveal his identity to his disciples and his disciples at this point alone. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Why? Likely it's this. When they heard the term Christ, they were waiting for the restoration of physical or geopolitical Israel. In fact, if you know from the book of Mark and the other gospels, you know there were times where people saw his amazing things. They even wanted to crown him as king. And the reactions to Jesus were so amazing. Either everyone wanted to follow him and interrupt him or else they wanted to crucify him and get rid of him. And he says at this point it's not the appropriate time to be revealed. It would not come until chapter 14. But here at this point his disciples were to know he is the Christ. our lives mirror this masterpiece? Have you made a profession of faith like these individuals did up here? If you have, then you've made a profession of faith which tells us that you by your own power are a sinner who cannot possibly save yourself. In fact, you are doomed You are doomed to a life that bears the consequences of sin and to the consequences of that sin which are the wages of death and eternal punishment. So you have come to the realization that apart from some intervention, you have no hope because you can do nothing in this world to cover up the guilt and the shame and the penalty and curse of your sin. But you also confess that in Jesus Christ alone, nobody else, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Because Jesus alone is the anointed one. Jesus is the only one who would die on the cross and atone for our sins. He is the only one who bore the penalty of our sins on his back. And so you have made that profession that in Christ alone is salvation and I trust him with my life and with my eternity. Now what? What are the implications of this? If Jesus is the Christ, what does your life look like now? The disciples were going to learn about this. They were going to learn what it meant to take up your cross and follow him.
1: They were going to learn what it meant to say
0: you can't look back. They're going to be learning what it meant to be a Christian and to live a life worthy of your calling in Christ. They're going to learn all the things that Paul teaches us in the epistles. They're going to learn the things about having comfort knowing that Jesus was going to come back someday. But in the end, they were learning not only the implications of who Jesus is, but how that means we should live for him. We have a new year coming. 2024. You believe that? I can't.
1: I was joking with my family back up in Tennessee, my wife's family, that we could celebrate next fall 25 years since I entered ministry. It seems like yesterday.
0: We've now celebrated 21 years of marriage, my wife and I. You know, t- Time seems to fly. But the most important thing that has happened in any of our lives is the realization of who Jesus is if that's not the central truth and theme of your life, you're missing the boat. Mark is reminding us here, it's all downhill from here. They are in the northernmost part, at the foot of the Hermon, Mount Hermon, the foothills of Mount Hermon. From there it would be all down the journey to Jerusalem through chapters 8 through 16. It would culminate with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the theme is this, the blind will see.
1: Just as this blind man was
0: healed in Bethsaida, just as Peter was revealed supernaturally the truth that Jesus is the Christ. So you, if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have been revealed the most important truth of all of human history, that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. He's the only one. There's nobody else. Nobody's coming after him. Nobody came before him. He is the one Savior, the anointed one, to carry out the whole purpose of God. And in him, you have life. In 2024, Will you be among the blind who see? Let's pray.
1: Father, we thank you for this truth, central to your gospel, the gospel of Mark,
0: central to the teaching that Jesus would save his people from their sins,
1: central to our lives,
0: that authors would write books. So what should we do now?
1: Lord, help us
0: to see the truth, help us to believe the truth, and help us to live for the truth. The truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen.